You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Please open God's Word to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we will read the context of the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, beginning at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. At this point, His disciples came, and they were amazed that He had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, as we come to your word, we know and confess that in ourselves we have no power to understand your word. We have not even the ability to obey your word as we should. We are weak and frail and we need your spirit to work in us to do these things. We ask, O oh God, that you would give to us your grace, your presence, and your spirit to understand in your word those things that you have for us. We pray that you would match the needs of our heart with what your word has for us this morning. Bless this time. May your word be our guide and may your spirit be our teacher. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we started to look at this closing of the conversation between Nicodemus, that's John chapter 3, the woman at the well in Samaria and Jesus. And I mentioned last time that the whole tone of this conversation is changing here at the end because it seems to be wrapping up. It's coming to a conclusion. And if you were reading this for the very first time, you would be asking yourself, I wonder what the woman is going to do with this information that she has been given about living water and eternal life and forgiveness of sins and all of that. And so you're, you're kind of would be reading with the expectation of wanting to find out what is going to happen to the woman. Is she going to leave like Nicodemus, as far as we know, unconverted? Or is she going to leave with a changed and regenerated heart? And what would be the evidence? If her heart was regenerated, if she had been changed, if she did come to faith in the Messiah, if she did taste of this living water, never to thirst again, what would be the evidence of that? What would we expect to see her response be? And now the whole conversation is changing a little bit because it's no longer just Jesus and the woman at the well because by the time we get to verse 30, there are two other groups of people who show up on the scene. So the whole conversation goes from being a very private one to being a very public one as two groups of people arrive, first the disciples in verse 27, and then in verse 30, the men or the people from the village of Sychar, two miles away from the well. And so now it's becoming a very public conversation, the whole dynamic is about to change. And it's very interesting to see what the woman does with what Jesus has told her and what her reaction is. And I think that this is where we get an evidence, an indication that the woman did not leave like Nicodemus, 
unconverted, unconvinced, that the woman left a convert. She left a convert. So last week, I well, it wasn't last week, it was two weeks ago, I presented to you an outline that sort of revolves around all four of the people that we see involved. We see Jesus, we see the woman at the well, we see the disciples, and then we see the men from Sychar. Four different peoples or groups of peoples. And I suggested the following outline. First, we see the self-revelation of Jesus in verses 25 and 26. Then we see the stunned reaction of the disciples to the fact that he was speaking with a woman. And in that stunned, uh, in that self-revelation of Jesus, he responded to the woman's statement, when Messiah comes, he will explain everything to me. And Jesus said, I am the one speaking to you. That's the first of over 21 of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Oftentimes, the I am statement is coupled with some sort of a metaphor. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection life. I am the living water. I am the bread come down from heaven. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life, etc. But all of the rest of the times, you just see Jesus referring to himself as the I am and using this I am title to refer to himself. And it's very clear how he does it. It's very straightforward. Anybody listening to it would have understand exactly what he was doing, taking that Exodus chapter 3 title of Yahweh, Jehovah God, and using it of himself. That was enough to stun the woman, but it also stunned the disciples when they showed up and saw not only that he was revealing his messianic identity to this woman, but that he was speaking to a woman, which was something that somebody of his stature, somebody in his position, never would have done in that day. A rabbi never would have spoke openly in public to a woman because of what it would communicate. It was just the inappropriate thing to do. And one of the things we see about Jesus and the apostles in the Gospels and the apostles in the book of Acts is that these men were not man-pleasers. We'll notice that all as we go through the book of John. Jesus was not a man-pleaser. He did not wake up every day wringing his hands saying, I wonder what people are going to think of me today. I wonder if people are going to trust me. I wonder if people will believe me. I wonder if people are going to think that I'm relevant, that I'm hip, that I'm acceptable, that I'm part of the in crowd. I wonder if people are going to give me a hearing. He thought little or nothing of the taboos of his day, the cultural taboos of his day. He thought little to nothing of the religious customs of his day, which were not anchored in the word of God. And he didn't give much credence or thought at all to the religious leaders and what they thought of him. But Jesus and the apostles that followed him always were concerned with doing what was right in the Father's eyes, never worrying what people thought, what men thought, what their opinions of him were. And so that's what shocked the disciples. Here he was speaking to a woman in public. So now we look at today, point three and point four. That is now the woman's speedy report into the city. And then fourth, the seeking response of the villagers who come out to the well to see what is going on. I think very interesting verses ahead of us. So look at verse 28 and 29. This is the woman's speedy report. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now there's a little detail in verse 28 that has been the cause of a lot of spilled ink over the centuries. And it is that little detail that John gives. She left her water pot. You would be amazed to read the chapters, the volumes, the number of trees that have died trying to explain that detail, and the fanciful doctrinal concoctions and goofy things that have been written about that little detail that she left her water pot. Now I'm going to explain to you what I think John means and what he intended for us to understand from that detail, because no detail in Scripture is insignificant. Every detail is there. This was not an accident that the Spirit of God put that in there. And I think that John put it in there for a very significant and important reason. I want you to notice, first of all, that 
that little detail, she left her water pot, is something that kind of gives an eyewitness flavor to the whole passage. Do you notice that? I think this is something that John himself remembered as he was sitting down to write this, something that he remembered from this whole scene. Now, he had come back from Sychar because he had gone into the town to buy food for Jesus, came back out, and when he arrived on the scene, he heard the woman say, when Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this. That was her way of sort of wrapping up the conversation. When the Christ gets here, he'll tell us all, that's just enough of the conversation. Then they hear Jesus say, I am the one speaking to you. The very first thing that John noticed is that she did something with the water pot. She left the water pot. This was something that he saw. It struck him as out of the ordinary. It was a detail that adds a certain eyewitness flavor to the whole account. I think it was something that as John reflected upon the scene, he remembers this vividly. She left her water pot and went away into the city. Now, why, we ask, did the Spirit of God include that little detail in there? I'm going to give you three what I think are sane explanations for that detail. And then I'm going to give you a couple of them from the goofy zone. And I'm going to explain why I think John put this detail in there. First, a couple of possible explanations for the detail from the sort of the sane camp. At least sane as I view it. Okay, so My sanity might not be your sanity. I understand that entirely. Sane explanation. It is very possible, some say, that she simply forgot the water pot. She forgot it. Now, in the course of this whole conversation, you can understand this. He's asked her for water. They've talked about living water, about worship. The nature of God has been quite a theological whirlwind of a conversation. And she has she is shocked by the fact that he knows her marital history, this fact that she's had five husbands, and the one she was living with now is not her own. She's gone through all of that. She's had the guilt. Her conscience has been quickened and awakened. She suddenly feels her need for this living water and forgiveness. And, and now she is utterly shocked by the fact that she has now come to realize that she's standing in the presence of one who is claiming to be the I Am and has said, I am the Messiah. And in the midst of all of that, her fascination with the water and the water pot and getting water and bringing it back to the village has been entirely eclipsed. And the furthest thing from her mind is the very thing that she went out there to get, which was the water. And so she turned around and she bolted from the well on her way into town and entirely forgot that she left the water pot. Some would suggest that. Now, I don't think that that's the best explanation for this reason. The word left is not the word for forget. She didn't forget. In fact, it's the same word that's used up in verse 3 when it says Jesus left Judea. It doesn't mean that he forgot Judea or he accidentally wandered out of Judea into Samaria. It means that he intentionally, as an act of his will, for a specific purpose, left Judea and turned and went to Samaria. It doesn't mean left or forgot. It means left. So it doesn't have anything to do with forgetting, I don't think. It's a possible explanation but I don't think the best explanation. Let me offer to you a couple of other ones, and I think it's some combination of these two. I think that likely, at the end of this whole conversation, the woman is intent upon one thing, and that is getting into town, telling everybody what she has seen, and getting them back out to the well before this man and his scraggly band of travelers takes off into Galilee, which was the intention. She knew that he was stopping at the well like travelers did on their way to somewhere else, she wants to get into town, tell the people, get them back out to the well so they have a chance to see this, see this man and meet him before he leaves. And the last thing you want to do is carry a water pot with you, especially if it's filled up with water, all the way back that two miles into town. Better to be far, uh, better to be unencumbered than to be encumbered with the water pot. And so the woman, in her haste to get into town, not wanting to be encumbered by the water pot, set the water pot down, moved it over out of the way and turned and left. Because even though John didn't know this, the woman knew that she was coming back out to the well. 
as fast as she could. That's the second possibility. I think that sounds reasonable, does it not? Or a third possibility. At the beginning of this conversation, what started the conversation between the man and the woman, between Jesus and the woman at the well? What was the very first words that were spoken? Verse 7, give me a drink. Now I told you back at the beginning of this conversation, her tone toward him has been anything but pleasant and anything but, but docile. How is it that you being a Jew asked me a Samaritan for a drink? Since I'm a Samaritan woman. Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. And so, so begins this sort of snarky exchange from her perspective. But Jesus never responded in kind. He responded very kindly. And he sort of softens, ends up softening her tone all the way through this conversation. It gets to the very end. And I told you at the beginning, I don't think, even up to this point, that she has offered to Jesus water. They, he asked her for water. She never gave it to him. I don't think she gave it to him. I think that she was very snarky with him. And as the whole conversation progresses, she gets to the very end, finally hears him say, I am the Messiah. She is stunned by that. And then she suddenly realizes he was thirsty. And he's the Messiah. I think that it's a combination of two things. In her haste to get into town and setting aside the water pot, she left it there for Jesus and the disciples to drink out of. And she turned and left and went into town. Those, I think, are two very sane possibilities. Now, let me give you a couple of explanations from people whom I respect, and I won't name any names with these, but people whom I respect who have suggested other meanings to the detail of the water pot. They would say that the water pot is a symbol. Stop right there. Anytime, yeah, some of you are rolling your eyes already. And because you know this, anytime somebody says about a passage of Scripture or a detail in a passage of Scripture, this is a symbol or this is a type or this is a picture or this is a shadow or this, I think, symbolizes this. Anytime somebody begins with that, they're only about two steps from goofy land. And by goofy land, I don't mean anything connected to Walt Disney World. I just mean the land of thinking that is goofy. And here's why. Because if the text itself does not say, this is what that means, the minute somebody begins by saying, I think it is a symbol of this, what you have just entered is the imagination of the expositor or the imagination of the writer. And you need to run, not walk, but run far away from that. Because guys say this is a symbol of that and then they build an entire theological structure on a symbol and that's not how we interpret scripture. So they would say, this is the first of, of the goofy land options. First they would say this, the jar, the water pot is a symbol of her sin. A symbol of her sin. Now, in her thirst, which sin creates, she came out to the well to seek satisfaction. But she, like with sin, you always have to come out to the same well and fill that same water pot all over, over and over again because sin can never satisfy. Sin just creates thirst for more sin. And drinking of the water from that well, from that water pot, just created thirst for more of the water. So she carried it with her. It's a burden. It's dry. It's a clay vessel. It's everything that our sin typifies. She had to carry it with her every time she came out to the well. But finally she came out there that one time and she met Jesus and she left her sin at his feet and she turned and went away into the city. So the water pot is a symbol of her sin and that's what you and I should do is leave our sin at the feet of Jesus. Make sense? It makes sense because in many ways it's a very true statement. We should leave our sin with Jesus. Jesus does satisfy our sin. Sin can never satisfy, sorry, Jesus does satisfy the, the thirst that is created by our sin and sin can never satisfy itself. Though that explanation might sound really good in a Joel Osteen study Bible, you got to ask yourself, is that what John, the author of the gospel, was thinking when he wrote 
She left her water pot and went away into the city. Now, if that's not what John, the author of the gospel, intended when he wrote that, I don't think that's what it meant. Second possibility from Goofy Land, the water pot is a symbol, here we go with the symbols again, of the law, the Old Testament law. It is inferior to Christ. It is inferior to the living water. It's inferior to the new covenant. It's inferior in all of those ways. It was fragile. It could be broken, just like the Old Testament law. It was a burden, just like the Old Testament law. It was dry and could not satisfy and was a symbol of all the Old Covenant and all of the symbols and uh, the types that foreshadowed Christ. But when she finally met Christ, grace, she left the law at his feet and turned from the law and went her way. Possible? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's a symbol. So what is the water pot? Are you ready for this? Hold on to your seats. It's a water pot. That's all it is. It's a water pot. I know that sounds kooky. It sounds out there. It's a stretch. It was a water pot. So why does John mention the water pot? I think because he is intending to show the haste with which this woman left the scene. She's not embarrassed by the disciples. She's not embarrassed by Christ. But in her newfound faith, in her newfound regeneration, the being born again that Jesus described in Nicodemus, having found the new birth and received the new birth, immediately she has one thing and one thing only on her mind. And it's not drawing water, and it's not bringing water back to the village. What is it? Telling other people about what she has seen. That is the first, the initial, and the most natural reaction to the grace of God, and to the grace of regeneration. When I got saved, I remember the passion in my own heart. Do you remember it? When you got saved, what was the first thing you wanted to do? I wanted to tell all my friends about it. And I went, and I told my friends. And I went back to high school with friends that I had hung around with before I got saved. And they would say, okay, Jim, this Friday night we're doing this, and we're going this place, and we're doing such and such. And I would say to them, and I remember the first week after I got saved, I said to my very best friend in the whole world, I said, I can't do that because something inside of me has changed. I don't know what it is, but I have to tell you about this. I became a believer in Christ. I became a Christian. That's not me anymore. And I went home and I told my, my mom. I told my sister. I told my friends. I told anybody who would give me a listening ear. That, I think, is what the woman is wanting to do. And the very first thing that John remembers seeing her do is set aside that water pot and bolt into the village to tell the people. That was the speedy report. So look what she says to him. By the way, it's amazing how much sermon I got out of a water pot, right? She says to him, she said to the city, come, to the men in the city, come and see a man who told me all the things I've ever did. Is this not the Christ? Now some people say, why did she go in and talk to the men of the city? Did she just know the men? Some people suggest she just knew the men. I think... In being gracious to the woman, I think we ought to assume that if this is somewhere around noon to one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, that going into the city, probably the first and only people that she would be met with was the men. They were the ones in the marketplace. They were the ones doing the vending, the commercial and the work in the city. They were out. The women were at the homes preparing for the evening, preparing for the uh, the family, taking care of the kids and all of those things. I'm not trying to be sexist or uh, patriarchal or anything like that. It's just how it was in that culture. She walked into the city. She wouldn't have been able to get a hearing with the women because they would have all despised her. She had slept with some of their husbands. But she would have been able to get a hearing with the men. And it's likely that she would have encountered, first of all, the men of the city. And so she said to them, come and see a man who told me all the things that I've ever did. 
Now, is that a true statement or an exaggeration? It's a bit of an exaggeration, is it not? Had Jesus really told her everything she'd ever done? All he had said to her was, you were immoral. Certainly, she had done more than that. But this woman, having been confronted with Christ and understanding or seeing him reveal his understanding of her, she came to the conclusion that this one who knew her that intimately would be able to tell her everything she had ever done. She's convinced of that. It's a little bit of an overstatement, an exaggeration, but one that you and I can understand and sort of let slide because having heard him speak, she is convinced that if he had the time and the opportunity, he could reveal not just the fact that she'd been married five times and was living with a man who was not her husband, but that he could tell her everything she's ever done. All she's saying is, I just met somebody who knows everything about me, who knows everything about me. He's told me everything that I ever did. Come and see. Come and see. I love the simplicity of that invitation. Come and see. This is the essence of what sharing Christ is. Do you notice that she doesn't give to the men of the city a big theological explanation of who the Christ is and how he fulfilled the Old Testament prophets and predictions or anything like that? She doesn't reason with them from the Scriptures. She doesn't open up a passage from the Pentateuch and begin explaining how the one she just met fulfilled this passage. She doesn't offer any long, involved, philosophical or apologetic argument for this Christ. All she says to the men is, come and see. Come and see. You, you judge for yourself. You come out and see what I have seen. Here is what I have seen, and I'm convinced that if, if you come and look at what I have seen, and if you come and meet what I have met, you too will come to the same conclusion that I have come to. Then she says to them, is this not the Christ, or could this be the Christ? Now, do you think in her mind she is doubting her conclusion that she's come to when she asks that question? I don't think she's doubting it at all. Here, I think, is what is happening. She is being very wise in the way she presents this to the men. In that culture, if a woman had walked into the village and said, look, I have just met the Christ. I have just met he of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. He is out at Jacob's well. I am convinced this is the man. You have to come and see him. Get out here. Come on, let's go. Let's go meet him. You know what the men would have, you know what she would have been met with? What does a woman know about religion? And this woman of all people. This immoral woman now finds religion and she expects to be somebody that we should listen to. You can't take her seriously. They would have, with her moral history, they would have blown her off. But instead, rather than asserting what is true, she simply says to them, come and see. Is this the one? You decide. You render your own verdict. You examine the evidence and you see if this one is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Friends, that is the exact same invitation that is given to you and I today, to every man and woman living. Come and see. You examine the evidence for Christ, and you see if he is worthy of your confidence and worthy of your trust and worthy of obedience. You see if he will not cleanse your conscience and renew within you a right spirit and give you eternal life when you believe upon him. You come and see. You look in the faces of this Jesus revealed in the New Testament, and you make the decision whether or not he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. You make that decision. Don't say it doesn't matter. It does matter. And you're a fool if you look into the eyes of this Jesus and say, I'm not going to pay any attention. I'm not going to give any credence to somebody who claimed to be the one who would decide my eternal destiny. And you are a fool to look into the eyes of this Christ and say, I'm not going to give any consideration to a man who claimed to be the one who will one day resurrect all men, the just and the unjust, and that all men would stand before him and be judged. That's a serious claim. And so what we say to people is, you have to decide if this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and if He is able to do what He said He able to do, and if He did what Scripture says He did. So come and see. And then 
You decide. You determine whether it's true or not true. It is either true or not true. But I'm convinced. And I will tell you the testimony of Jim Osmond. I have examined the claims of Christ. And I have found that he is worthy of my confidence and worthy of my trust and worthy of my obedience and worthy of my adoration. And I have found that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I have found that he came to open my eyes and to give me life and that believing in him, I have received life. I have received a cleansed conscience. I have received a new spirit, new affections, a new life. And I am not the same person that I was over 20 years ago. That's what I have found. And when you share Christ, you're simply telling them, you need to examine the claims of this one who said that you would stand before him and be judged. So come and see. Is he the Christ? You decide. And it, quite frankly, was enough to pique their interest because they came out to the well. They came out to the well in verse 30. By the way, this invitation, come and see, we've already seen it a couple times in the book of John. And just to give you sort of a scope of perspective, this seems to be the invitation that John is giving throughout his gospel. You come and see. You come analyze the facts. Here's the, here it is written. Here's the testimony. You see if he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you see if they're believing in life, believing in him, you have life in his name. In John chapter 1, when two of John the Baptist's disciples, John and Andrew, I think it was, uh, came to Christ after the testimony of John the Baptist. They came to Christ, and Jesus said to them, What do you seek? And they said, We seek you. And then he said to them, Then come and see. It was an invitation. You come and see. You come and spend time with me. You come and get to know me. And you come and you will see. And then in John chapter 1 later on, Philip and Nathaniel, when Philip said to Nathaniel, We have found he of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which Philip responded, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And then in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to see. He was unconvinced. And then in John chapter 4, the woman at the well says to the men in the village, come and see. That's the invitation to come and partake. And it's open to all, my friends. It's open to all. Now verse 30. We've looked at the speedy report of the woman. Now the seeking response of the villagers. Verse 30, they went out of the city and were coming to him. Now, there's not a lot that really needs to be said about that verse. I just want you to notice a couple of things. The tense or the sense of the Greek verb coming out, they were coming out of the city. It's not just one group of people that came out of the city and went. The sense or tense of the Greek language is that this was something that continued to be be uh, happening. It was sort of a trickle, a steady trickle of people that came out of the village and were coming out to see Jesus. A steady course, not just one group. But I imagine that by the end of the day, by the evening, there were a number of people who had come from the village over the course of that afternoon out to the well to come and see for themselves if this one was the Christ, the Son of God. Now, oftentimes when we are studying a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture, one of the challenges for those who teach Scripture is to try and place um, ourselves into the biblical text and begin to see and feel everything that was going on from the perspective of those who are in the narrative. And one of the things that I try and do when I preach and teach up here is to get all of us sort of into the flesh of the narrative so that we can see and feel and hear things from the perspective of the people in it. So we have listened to this conversation and we've heard it from the woman's perspective. We placed ourselves in the foot, in the shoes of the disciples and heard this closing statement from their perspective. Now I ask you to place yourself in the perspective of the men and the people who came out from the village to the well. I want you to imagine the journey just for a second, if you will. 
It's two miles from Sychar out to Jacob's well. They've had the woman come in. She's borne testimony. Word has got around over the course of the afternoon. People are sort of trickling out to the well. Now, it's two hours, which gives you, I don't know, you do the math because math isn't my forte, a number of minutes before you get out to the well. Maybe 30 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that, I guess. Before you get out to the well. And you're on your way out to the well. I want you to put yourself in the mindset of those who are on their way out there. I would be asking myself, is it possible that the Messiah would actually come to Samaria, of all places? Is it really possible that this woman would meet the Messiah at a well? We might hear of him in Jerusalem. We might hear of him in our capital city. But at a well? And what will the Messiah look like as we get out there? When we show up on the scene, what is he going to look like? Is he going to be dressed in robes? Will it be purple robes or white robes? Will he have a crown on his head? Will he be carrying a sword or a king's staff? Or what exactly is he going to look like? How, how would the Messiah comb his hair? If he were here today, would he, would he have a beard or not have a beard? Long hair, short hair? Would it touch his collar? Would it be shorter hair? What is he going to look like? Is he going to be tall or short? Are we going to notice? How is he going to talk? Is he going to be gentle or stern? Is he going to condemn our religion? Or is he going to commend us? Is he going to teach us all things? They would have a lot of expectations and a lot of time to discuss that on the way out to the well. Then they would show up at the well. And they would probably be able to pick out, like as if I were sitting here with, in this group of people. Okay, I know, I know most of these people. Okay, there's, a, there's somebody new. I've never seen them before. They would have had the same sort of experience they got to the well. A bunch of people they saw from the village, they knew those. And okay, here's a group of guys that we've never seen before. We don't know who they are, we don't know where they are. They're different than everybody else from the village. This must be them. Let's just assume, and I don't know if all the disciples are there, let's just assume for today's illustration, there were 12 of them there. 13 guys. Now, which one of them is the Messiah? Which one? Would you have been able to pick him out, having never seen him, never met him, would you have been able to pick him out of a crowd of those 13 men? Yes or no? You say, of course, because he had the little halo. I've seen the pictures. The little golden halo over his head and his face shone with a brightness and a light. Well, that may be what Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Ages art would communicate. But the prophet Isaiah says he had no stately form or majesty that we should desire him or that we should be drawn to him. And as you walked up to that crowd, you know what you would have seen? Thirteen rather ordinary Jewish looking men. Dark hair, dark skin, dark eyes probably less than six feet tall, and none of them would have stood out. Just from appearance. Just from appearance. Well, the men meet him down later on in the passage, and we'll get to that. Because the next few verses kind of take us back in time a little bit. But I want you to put yourself in the perspective of these people who are coming out to see him. Would you be expecting to see the Savior of the world, the Messiah, at a well in Samaria? My guess is that we would have a bias against that. Our curiosity would be piqued enough to go check. But I wouldn't be expecting that. I would expect to show up and say, yeah, the, well, the woman is a fruit loop, just like we expected. She, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's nuts. This is not him. Another false alarm. And go back into the city. As we draw all of this to a close, I just want to offer to you a couple of observations. It strikes me as, as significant and I think worth noting how Jesus took the time and used this one very insignificant woman. One very insignificant woman. I feel encouraged by this because I, I find more, I find that I have more in common with 
the woman at the well than I do Peter or Paul or James or John or any of the other Bible heroes that we read about in the New Testament. She's a very insignificant woman. Do you even know her name? You don't, do you? She's still unnamed. Even after this whole chapter, she's still unnamed. We don't know what her name is. So the Roman Catholic Church can't saint her. You can't name your daughters after her. You can't name streets after her or buildings after her or movements after her. You can't name regions of the country after her. And my guess is that everybody who is seated here this morning will end your life in the very same situation in the grand scheme of things as the woman at the well did. Basically, in the annals of church history, totally unknown and unnamed and unsainted by the Roman Catholic Church. And you're not going to have any buildings named after you or streets named after you or roads or religions or movements or theologies named after you. You're going to be really, in the scheme of things, a very insignificant player. A nobody. But I'm thankful that God uses nobodies. This woman was a nobody. She was a despised woman from a despised region of the country who had a despised history. She's unnamed. She's unrenowned in any sense of the word. And yet, the Lord chose her, and she was the means of reaching the whole village. She was the means of reaching the whole village. That, to me, is significant and incredible. And further, you and I should never despise sharing the gospel or addressing ourselves to only one person. A lot of people are willing to share the gospel if it's up in front of crowds. If I can be the guy up front and I do this in front of multitudes, I'm happy to do that. I love to do that, but I don't have time for one-on-one evangelism. You and I should never despise somebody such as her. This woman had no giftedness. She had nothing about her that you and I might be drawn to her or think that she would be a significant player in church history at all. And yet this is the woman that the Lord used to reach a whole village. One person is not insignificant because you never know in talking to that one person what that one person is going to end up doing. We should always remember that. And the third observation I would leave you with, and this is just, I think, a humorous one and something that's a bit ironic. And so we'll kind of leave this on a humorous note. The disciples, 12 men, the fishers of men, the evangelists, the one whom the Lord had pulled aside and was training to proclaim his name and his truth and his kingdom and to bring people to him. They went into Sychar, 12 evangelists. And what did they come back with? Lunch. One woman, untrained, never met Jesus before this day, went into the same city, and what did she come back with? A crowd of people. Now there's irony in that, is it not? In fact, that's the very basis of the rebuke that the Lord begins to give the disciples in verses 31 and following. You went into the city and you were totally oblivious to the harvest. Totally oblivious to the opportunities that were presented to you. This one single solitary woman who had not spent even more than an hour with Jesus was able to go into that city and bring back a crowd of people to meet the Messiah. These 12 men brought back lunch, fish and bread. That's all they brought back. These are the evangelists. These are the men who are being trained as fishers of men. But we got our fish and our bread. <laughs> that to me is humorous. That to me is ironic. And God used the woman. The one woman. She was the one. Just one. She was the one that brought the whole crowd out. Now, were the disciples convinced that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God? Oh, they absolutely were. We saw that from chapter 1. They were convinced of that. But when they went into the city, you know what they should have come back with? Lunch and people. They should have come back with the crowd. As the woman left, she should have been met with this group of people coming out from the city because they should have gone in and said, look, we're after lunch 
And we're buying lunch for the Messiah. Would you like to come and meet him? He's out at the well. Why don't you join us? Come on out with us. Get us some bread. Get us some fish. You've got to meet this man. Come out and see what we have seen. They went into the city thinking about one thing. Mm, that growling in my stomach. i got to get some bread and fish. The woman went into the city thinking about one thing. I have to tell other people about what I have seen and what I have met. And that's the person that God used. So from the disciples, we learn a lesson and a warning about the negligence and being oblivious to the opportunities that are all around us every day. And from the woman, we learn the lessons and are encouraged that God uses even such as one and meager, measly efforts at that to glorify himself and to bring people to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word and for its significance and for the lessons that we learn We don't want to be oblivious to what you are doing around us and through us. Help us to be mindful always that you have you have ordered the steps of our lives to be crossing paths with people around us who need the gospel and who need to meet Christ and who need to be invited and commanded to come to him. We pray, O God, that you would make us faithful in this task and encourage our hearts together in it, that you might be honored, that you might be glorified through us and our efforts, however small they might be. May your grace and may your peace and may your love go with all of us This day and this week, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.